This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We've been covering this situation in Eastern Europe since the beginning, although the challenge often can be determining when the beginning began. So we have been monitoring these developments as it, it becomes increasingly likely, at least based on some reports, that there's going to be some sort of an armed conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and it will somehow involve the United States, possibly in providing lethal aid to Ukraine, possibly in, in providing financial support, certainly in providing diplomatic cover. Uh, President Biden, Secretary of State Tony Blinken, they've made clear that they're not going to tolerate any incursion by Vladimir Putin and the Russians into eastern Ukraine. What does that mean? What does not tolerating an incursion into Ukraine actually look like? And how are America's interests served? Well, somebody who is one of the best thinkers on foreign policy around happens to be Joshua Schifrinson. He's an associate professor at Boston University and author of the book Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. Josh, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks for having me, Frank. So uh, before we get to the Russia-Ukraine situation, tell me briefly uh, about your book, Rising Titans, Falling Giants. W what's it all about? I haven't had the opportunity to read it. Sure. Thanks for uh, plugging it. You know, it, it's a book that examines how great powers, when they begin growing in economic and military strength, countries like China or Russia today, think about dealing with other countries that they're ga gaining on, you know, countries like the United States today. And by looking at history and using some theory, I make the argument that a lot really depends on whether those states think they can use that declining country, that relatively declining country, to compete against other challenges that they face. I and the more they need that, and so they, the more they need that state as an ally, uh, the more likely they are to be cooperative. So give me an example of uh, a state that was in a, a conflict that became sort of sure. a, a global chess piece and then maybe one that didn't become a global chess piece. Absolutely. It's a wonderful question. So, you know, we often think about Great Britain today as, as America's natural ally, but that wasn't always the case, right? And so looking back at history, I, I find that the United States really became close with Great Britain, not out of any sense of common heritage or common tradition, but really to get after the Soviet Union during the Cold War. Now, conversely, the U.S. really went about kicking the Soviet Union in the teeth at the end of the Cold War, because in that time frame, the U.S. was growing, uh, the Soviet Union was falling apart, and there was no other challenger around that the U.S. needed the Soviet Union's help with. Wow. It sounds like a fascinating book. I'm going to try and order a copy today. And if people want to do the same, again, it's called Rising Titans, Falling Giants. All right. Let's talk about this Russia situation. I am trying to figure out what the story is in terms of uh, a likelihood of invasion. You have the United States, which seems to be very clear that an invasion is imminent. You have Ukraine, which says that an invasion is not imminent. And they seem to sort of publicly admonish President Biden a few days ago for saying that an invasion was imminent, Israel apparently saying an invasion is not imminent, and Vladimir Putin saying he doesn't want to invade. What do you see as the likelihood of a Russian invasion into Ukraine at this point, Josh? Well, well so it's a really wonderful question. I, I want to step back for half a second, though, and I want to distinguish between a Russian invasion of Ukraine from other kinds of Russian activity against Ukraine, things like cyber attacks or hacking or special operators, right? And, and so I think it's very, very likely we're going to see some kind of Russian 
aggrandizement, some kind of Russian aggression, cyber attacks, for example, against Ukraine. In terms of, of a Russian attack or outright Russian military invasion like Iraq against Kuwait back in the Gulf War, uh, I, I think we're probably above 50 percent. 50-50. Okay. Well, those are better odds than you have at the uh, roulette wheel. So hopefully things work out as they should. What has, uh, I hope so, too. What has diplomacy – how has diplomacy been working out between the United States and Russia, between the Ukrainian government and Russia? Have these diplomatic talks produced anything fruitful? Well, the fact that they're still talking tells me that they haven't been unhelped, right? We, we've had several rounds of negotiations now. Obviously, the Ukraine-Russian conversations have really not gotten anywhere. We know this because Putin wants to talk to the United States directly. And as for the United States-Russian conversations, look, they've had several rounds of diplomacy. Uh, it seems like they that all parties want to continue meeting. But, of course, the United States, we just had the leaked uh, U.S. response to some Russian demands made public uh, just today. And the U.S. has been more open in trying to meet Russian concerns than the rest of the NATO alliance. So some of the European allies are actually slowing uh, the process down, taking a harder line than the United States is. So the fact that they're still talking is optimistic, but I think we're heading towards a problematic outcome. We've heard a great deal about sanctions over the years. We've had sanctions on Russia really since the annexation of Crimea eight years ago. Now, uh, President Biden saying if Vladimir Putin violates Ukraine's border, we're going to see even greater sanctions. Do you think sanctions have been effective? Do you think further sanctions would be effective? Uh, no and no, and let me let me unpack that a little bit. No, sanctions have not been terribly effective because at the end of the day, the Russians care an awful lot about Ukraine, and they've thought about whether they care about being slapped in the face economically and politically, diplomatically, and they decided not so much. And for that very reason, going forward, sanctions are not going to be a big response because the Russians have very vocally said Ukraine is a red line for us. It's kind of like Cuba was the United States during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And so economic sanctions and beyond, you know, may may sting a little bit. But at the end of the day, these are big, important issues to Moscow. And the threat just isn't commensurate with the interest. Well, so then, look, the Biden team, whatever people think about them, they are experienced foreign policy hands. You have Joe Biden, who, in addition to being vice president for eight years, served for years on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. You have uh, Tony Blinken and others uh, that are making decisions about foreign policy that have a lot of experience in this regard. Why, given what you seem to describe as the very obvious failure of sanctions, would that be the first arrow that the Biden administration looks to fire towards Russia? It's a really great question, and I, and I agree with you that the Biden team is pretty much the A team on this, the, a deeply experienced team. I think what's going on here is Biden and his his advisors have concluded that Ukraine, while it's a vital interest to Moscow, it just isn't a vital interest for the United States. And so the U.S. has to do something, and that something is sanctions. But the, it's not worth American time, energy, treasure, perhaps blood to really go much beyond that. Hmm. It's, just a, it's just the nature of the, bane, uh, of the game. So what can America really do at this point? Mm -hmm. Let's say Vladimir Putin is determined to go into eastern Ukraine. What are America's options that might be effective if sanctions isn't? 
Well, so I, I, I think there are two things that the United States can do. And actually, they don't really help Ukraine per se. What the U.S. can do, number one, is work with its NATO allies to really remilitarize the NATO alliance, a process that's been ongoing for about a decade now. It would probably kick into high gear if Russia went into Ukraine. The idea being there to say to Russia, hey, look, you just did this terrible thing. Any further aggression is going to be stopped hard and fast where NATO stops hard and fast. And, you know, closely related to that is to remind Russia what what, what it would uh, benefit from from getting out of Ukraine, those conditions, offering the olive branch, not as a threat, but as an inducement to, you know, change its course on the back end. Vladimir Putin said yesterday that he thinks that the United States and the West are trying to goad Russia into a conflict, basically goad Russia into a war. Based on your view of the situation, what's your take on on that? Do you think Vladimir Putin has a point? Uh, I don't don't think he has a point, but I I actually took that as a very optimistic signal. Because if you think about it, what what Putin's saying to those conditions is, hey, look, I don't want a war, and I'm trying to create maneuvering room so I look smart if I don't give a war. It's almost Putin giving himself breathing room not to do anything aggressive for the time being, again, giving time for that diplomacy uh, to continue. One of the things that we have heard a great deal about, one of the key Russian demands has been stopping NATO expansion in general along Mm -hmm. Russia's borders and stopping Ukraine from joining NATO specifically. One of the questions that the critics of a conflict with Russia, people on the right like uh, Tucker Carlson and Pep Buchanan, people on the left like Katrina Vanden Heuvel and Tulsi Gabbard, one of the things that they've been saying is what does America really gain by this continuous expansion of Russia, excuse me, of NATO? Let me ask you that question. What does America gain by pushing for countries like Estonia, Montenegro, and even Ukraine to join NATO? Well, I, I should be clear here. I have been critical of NATO enlargement as it's played out since the 1990s. But to answer your, your question directly, look, the United States gets more allies and therefore more more diplomatic leverage, and it solidifies the group of countries that are validly anti-Moscow at this point. So it kind of cloaks itself in more legitimacy and creates a broader community of like-minded countries. Uh, the question I think we need to talk about, though, is whether the risks that the United States runs and the costs the United States runs for that privilege uh, really nets out in the United States' favor. Uh, there was a very heated meeting of the U.N. Security Council Monday, and the U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said that uh, there's ample evidence to suggest that Russia intends to expand its presence of troops in Belarus to 30,000 troops. There's probably, according to her, about 8,000 troops there now. And a lot of people believe that that could be basically a first step in a march towards Ukraine. Is that a yeah. concern? Uh, do you believe that this Russian troop buildup, it, not only uh, in, in eastern Russia, it, but in Belarus, right. is an opportunity for trouble? Yes, I do. It, it's basically contributing to Ukraine's encirclement, which will require Ukraine to divide. It's actually fairly limited military forces along multiple fronts, uh, multiple fronts, excuse me. And it ensures that Kiev comes under sustained pressure, because even if Russia pulls back some troops from its own border, as long as it keeps troops in Belarus, the pressure on Kiev is going to sustain itself. So this is a real problem if, I, if I'm sitting in, in Kiev.
The Pentagon has placed 8,500 U.S. troops on heightened preparedness to deploy to NATO countries in Eastern Europe. And then just a a little while ago, it looks like uh, it's a lot more than readiness. It looks like some troops have actually been deployed to uh, President Biden ordering nearly 3,000 troops to Eastern Europe to counter Russia. What are 3,000 or 8,500 American troops going to do against 100,000 Russian troops? Very, very little. Uh, In fact, this is a mostly symbolic gesture. Uh, Not necessarily wrong, but mostly symbolic. You know, the U.S. uh, and its NATO allies have had troops in Eastern Europe as tripwire forces, meaning that if Russia were to, God forbid, come over the border, some of those troops would be fighting, some of them would die. And at that point, we can imagine what American and European public opinion would say. It would say, keep fighting, escalate further. And so the U.S. has tripwire forces. These additional forces that President Biden ordered uh, deployed today add more tripwire forces, but they don't change the fundamental picture. They're not going to fight the Russian army, as you just alluded to. So it's symbolic in a way. Has it been the right move, uh, in your view, under both the Biden and Trump administration to provide continuous military aid to Ukraine as they're fighting these Russian-backed separatists and as they're gearing up for a possible conflict with Russia. Russia certainly doesn't seem to think it was the right move. So I I think we need to distinguish between uh, the quantity of aid. I think the U.S. was right to provide Kiev with limited kinds of defensive armaments. Of course, under the Trump administration and now the early part of the Biden administration, American aid has really escalated further. And I think this has been really problematic because uh, if you're sitting in Moscow, you're asking yourself the question, where, well, where would this aid go in the future? Is it going to get more? Is it going to involve weapons that can hurt me if I'm sitting in Moscow? And so if I'm sitting in Moscow, I've seen this steady trickle, growing trickle of American aid, and I have to ask myself the question where it's going in the future. So I think the U.S. has walked a fine line, and I think it may have uh, stepped over the line a bit. Talking with Joshua Schifferinson, he's an associate professor at Boston University and author of the book Rising Titans, Falling Giants, How Great Powers Exploit Power Shifts. Josh, yesterday the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, said at a press conference, quote, this is not going to be a war of Ukraine and Russia. This is going to be a European war, a fully fledged war. Do you agree with that? Do you think uh, President Zelensky is right in his magnitude of how bad uh, this sort of a conflict would be? Well, I, I, I certainly hope not. I think President Zelensky is trying to uh, swagger a little bit, suggest to Russia what he hopes will happen. I think the European allies and the European Union itself, countries like Germany, countries like France, have been pretty clear in saying they don't want to fight for Ukraine. So I think he might be overstepping a little bit. Of course, If Russia does invade Ukraine, uh, war tends to have its own dynamics. It could escalate further. But I think all countries in Europe really want to avoid uh, further escalation if they can. Some of the more some of the more hawkish elements of both parties and some of the more hawkish elements of the foreign policy establishment in general, they're of the belief that the best way to deal with Russia is through strength, through uh, standing up to Vladimir Putin, who a lot of people have described at varying times as a bully or a thug, and that to do otherwise, to uh, to back off, would basically be a, a Chamberlain level of appeasement 
amazement. W- what's your take? Is there any merit to the hawkish view that the best way to deal with Putin is to stand up to him? Look, he, he is a thug and he is a brute, so we should be clear about this. But at the end of the day, uh, Russia is a weak country. It, uh, it's pretty far removed from the core of Europe anymore. It's not the former Soviet Union materially or politically. Uh, and the U.S. has bigger fish to fry in China, in the Middle East, in some cases at home. So I, I think the hawkish position is understandable. I think it's respectable. But I think at the end of, end of the day, and at the end of the day, it does not service American national interests. And I think, frankly, we've been trying the hawkish approach for the last eight years, and it simply contributed mm. to further problems. So you know, if we're going to use Einstein's definition of insanity of doing <laughs> the same thing over and over, and expecting a different outcome. Uh, I, 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 I do not think this is a road we should be going down. We've heard a great deal about China and how this escalation of tension with Russia could actually drive Russia closer to China, which could be problematic for the United States. How real of a concern do you think that is? And is there a pro- is there a possibility that should this this develop into an armed conflict that our support of Zelensky and Ukraine could drive Russia closer to China. Oh, I think that's a very real concern. We've already we've seen the deepening of the Russo-Chinese relationship over the last two decades. And just this week at the UN Security Council, we saw China really speak up in Russia's defense. But you often see China taking a far more restrained view in UN UN Security Council meetings. So I think we're already seeing uh, these problems manifest. And Look, if we're talking about a sustained U.S. standoff, NATO standoff with Russia, Russia is going to need economic support. It's going to need uh, military support. And China is well positioned to provide that. So I think the more the U.S. escalates with Russia and NATO escalates with Russia, the more we deepen this uh, Russo-Chinese alignment that the U.S. should be really worried about and frankly trying to uh, at least keep them apart. From where you're standing examining this situation, what do you think the best realistic scenario is to get out of this for the United States? And what do you think the worst pay- case scenario is for us right now? Well, so I, I, I think the best case option is the United States telling Moscow repeatedly and working with NATO allies like Germany and France uh, quietly to basically say to Moscow, look, we can't formally promise you that Ukraine is not coming into NATO. But we're all going to wink and nod and basically tell you that this is not happening anytime soon. You can provide a very long-term moratorium and in turn strike a deal to neutralize Ukraine, to Finlandize Ukraine, to make it a part of the world where neither Russia nor the United States will formally have an alliance. That, I think, is the best outcome for the United States and about the best outcome for Ukraine. The worst-case scenario, though— is the United States telling Russia that we are going to not only keep NATO's door open to Ukraine, but that we are going to do that independent, irrespective of what Russia does, kind of backing Russia into a corner. And so I think uh, under those conditions, we're likely to see Russia invade Ukraine, as you as you raised at the outset. And I think there's a real risk under those conditions that Russia may not stop until it reaches Kiev, at which point the U.S. and its NATO allies might feel real pressure to uh, get involved to punish Putin, as you allude to. Certainly, hawks would be calling for that. So I could see this really escalating to very dark places, very bad places, mm. even though no one wants it. And yeah. I'll just add one other point here. We have to remember, Russia is a nuclear-armed power. 
we need to remember what nuclear weapons are. You know, well, no one's really talking about this, but the prospect of a U.S.-Russian clash, intentional or otherwise, uh, really can go very dangerous places. And sometimes states lose control over how militaries operate. So I think we need to be talking very forthrightly about the real risks here and asking the question, is a potential conflict with Russia over Ukraine really worth even a 1%, even a 0.1% chance of a nuclear war? Now, uh, that is certainly something we're going to be keeping an eye on. Josh, thanks so much for joining us on the radio. I hope we can do this again soon. My pleasure. Call me anytime. Appreciate it. And a big shout out to uh, Joshua Schifferinson's father, who was listening in New Jersey. Happy to have one extra listener today. Hopefully he makes this a habit. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead.